We either can do the work and learn and grow, or we can choose to bury it, which is where people perpetuate it. And this is the same case with leadership. Everybody's carrying a burden that's weighing them down. Everybody. If you dare to care, then it is inevitable you'll end up carrying the burdens from grief, betrayal, rejection, and more. And these burdens are often unseen. And we end up diminishing, even dismissing the pain these burdens hold because no one can see them. And if no one else can see them, they're not really there, right? So not right. These invisible struggles feel loneliness, shame, and despair. They lead to harsh inner critics and a constant comparison to others who seem to be doing life so much better than you. Does that sound familiar? Eventually, the unaddressed burdens we carry start to impact our ability to live and lead in ways that are important to us. They take their toll on the quality of our work, our relationships, and our well-being. So when we bury our burdens instead of working through them, we perpetuate the pain they cause us. Father Richard Rohr wrote, If we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. The patterns from our traumas and difficult life experiences show up again and again. These patterns perpetuate in our relationships, in our business, and in our well-being. Yet instead of transforming the pains from abuse, betrayal, loss, shame, poverty, chronic health struggles, and so on, we see them as a poor reflection on our ability to lead, succeed, and provide. We have breathed in the clear and emphatic message, hide your pain. These messages say, keep the emotional burdens you carry silent. And they say, do not admit you're struggling so you don't lose respect. Like you, I've breathed in the messages that these burdens are flaws and signs of weaknesses and that they should never see the light of day. After all, I formed my work habits and early leadership skills in cultures where I internalized these messages. And people in positions of power have perpetuated these messages for decades. The impact of these toxic messages around struggle take a dangerous toll on how we care for ourselves and others, let alone lead ourselves and others. And this last year tested our ability to hold heavy and difficult emotions and feelings, to engage our teams, to support well-being, and lead through change, we must model and explore real and honest emotions. To do that, we get curious. We learn all we can about the burdens that weigh us down and how they impact our lives and leadership. And then we're able to better do that with others. Okay, but I can hear you saying, Rebecca, no, 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 no. I have to have it all together or I'll lose everything. I feel like such a fraud and everyone else has it all together. Or maybe, maybe I, I can hear you say something like, this is not okay for work. I have to leave this at home. Or I don't have time to deal with this. It's not professional. And I hate who I am right now. I hear you. Truly. I struggle with these beliefs too. And as much as I see how dangerous it is to bury the burdens I carry, I have to muster the courage to push back on these norms so I can lead myself and others differently. Changing culture is slow and tedious work, even scary, but I know you're up for the challenge. Now, my guest today is dedicating his life's work to changing culture's toxic message around struggle and how we approach the burdens we carry. I am so thrilled Dr. Frank Anderson came back for a continuation of our important conversation we started last month. Frank is in demand as one of the nation's leading mental health professionals as a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. Committed to promoting compassion, hope, healing, and nonviolence in the world, Frank specializes in the treatment of trauma and dissociation and is passionate about teaching brain-based psychotherapy and integrating current neuroscience knowledge with the IFS model of therapy. And speaking of IFS, Frank also travels around the world as a proponent instructor of the Internal Family Systems Psychotherapeutic Modality, which is an evidence-based treatment that I love, and I love sharing with other people too, that offers an accelerated path to self-awareness and emotional healing. I'm excited for you to listen to how Frank unpacks the intersection of ADHD, trauma, and neuroscience. Definitely make sure 
to listen to this. You might want to have to record and listen again. There's some good stuff here. And pay attention to our discussion around inner critics and how internal family systems offers a compassionate way to truly heal the burdens that agitate our inner critics. And listen to how Frank and I unpack And in many ways, it's only the tip of the iceberg unpacking on what actions are essential so we can lead with love and compassion in the face of injustice. Now, please welcome back Dr. Frank Anderson to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Frank, welcome back. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me again. No surprise that we could not cover everything in one session, right? (laughs) Not a surprise. We could talk for days. As someone who cares deeply, how are you navigating all that's happening in our country and in our world these days? Yeah, boy, that's a really powerful place. And, you know, interestingly enough, this may not be the most popular position. (laughs) I will say that. And the reason that I say that is this, how uh, is because there is such a huge polarity that exists in our world and in our culture right now. And you are either on one side or you are either on the other side. And growing up as somebody who is on one side and has most of my family who is on the other side, I've seen the impassioned position on both sides. Okay, I feel the impassioned position on one side, and I hear the impassioned position on the other side from people that I love. So it's been very complicated, but illuminating for me. And I hold a very spiritual view of what's happening in the world. I think we are here because we need to be here. I think change needs to happen. And I'm grateful that it's happening and i trust in the the goodness of the human spirit that we're going to get to a better place together so i i don't spend so much time on either side i kind of move myself above it all for example you know and i'll give it i'll give a, a couple examples of this rebecca because you know, and many people feel this way. I mean, the, the pandemic for people has been the most difficult, challenging thing of many people's lives. Loss has been astronomical. It's been so painful. And speaking of polarity, it's been one of the best things that's happened to our environment in years. The skies are clear. The oceans are clear. People are not working like crazy. It's been one of the best years of our lives and our family in some ways also. So we pulled back and we've Given, been given an opportunity to stop and reflect a little bit. So I look at this, what is showing up right now and what is our opportunity to learn, okay? And I tend to keep myself on the side of love and compassion. I don't spend too much time hating or fighting personally. I'm always positioning myself on the side of love and compassion. And I think the more we interject and inject love and compassion to what's going on in the world, the greater our chances of making the changes that we need to make will occur. So I'm not fighting. I grew up the recipient of fighting, and I just don't believe it within my soul, within my, you know, I'm glad that there's movement in progress. I'm glad that, you know, as I, I look at this kind of, as a gay person, as I talked about before, like there was gay marriage, there was gay equality, then there was a Me Too movement, you know, and now there's Black Lives Matter. Like I like there is this movement and progression of breaking down these divides. It's very painful. It's causing a lot of disharmony within our world and in our political system. But for me, I'm going to in, keep injecting love and compassion to the whole conversation, to both sides, because I really believe that's where we need to be. So mm-hmm. I don't want to get stuck too much personally in the weeds fighting. I want to inject love and compassion to everybody as much as I possibly can so that we can all reach a different place together. Do I know for certain that that's going to happen? No, I don't. 
but that is the way, that is the position that I'm placing myself is just injecting as much as I can in what's good. You know, I think about the word love and I, for me, my rumble, especially over the last few years yeah. and heightened in the last year, sometimes for me, love has been getting in the weeds in the face of injustice, whether mm. it's in my own story yeah. or in standing for things or for people or for issues that are so out of alignment, standing against things that are so out of alignment. And I find that it's such a tenuous place, as yeah. you say, to inject love and compassion isn't necessarily being, oh, I'm loving. Sometimes no. it's no, yes. hell no, yes. not okay, not now, not ever. Yeah. And that, that so for me can so quickly tip into me feeling consumed by the parts of me, the justice parts of me and the parts that are still holding the exile pain of my own story. It's That's such right. a dance. Do you find that dance for you too? Well, yes and no. Like for example, uh, uh, here's because I was going to say getting to love is rooted in healing your trauma. Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, getting love, real love, for the other side is rooted in healing trauma, both mine and the other sides. Okay. And part of what, and people know this who have got my book, I have this circular diagram, love heals trauma, trauma blocks love and it's circular. Whoa. Okay. okay. Love heals trauma, trauma blocks love. Okay. Hmm. I have family members, who were at the Capitol during the insurrection. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I can hold that and I know them dearly because they've been in my family for many, many years. Right. And I know the trauma that they hold and I mm -hmm. can, I can hold the trauma that's in there that causes a person to feel what they feel undervalued, less than being taken over all trauma rooted. And yes, they have a horrible trauma history separate from what they're acting out in the world. Okay. Separate from the cultural trauma. Sep well, it's separate. It's and. Connected. Right? It's yeah. totally yeah, yeah. connected. Okay. Connected. It's joint. You know, when you have a personal trauma, you get solidarity by joining a collective trauma. Right? Yes. Okay. Oh gosh. Yes. So, it's so systems I, 101. Can, yeah. I, as, as, as I can have my view and I could say, I don't agree with this. No, <laughs> I would never do anything like this. I am against violence of all kinds. I don't know, you know, no, no, no. You know, I could hold a no and, and this is not easy. Okay. It is not easy, but I also can hold a lot of love for this family member because I know the vulnerability and the wounding that they're holding. I know it honestly better than they do. They are not in touch with that. They're mm -hmm. still in their fight. They're still in their trauma, but I'm holding beyond it. Okay. And so I think this is a huge challenge for people. I think it's a it's, lot of energy. That's a lot of energy. It's difficult, or, but or you is know it? what? it's no, it's less energy. Not for you. It's, it's less, less energy, for energy you. because it is easier for me to hold love than to hold hate. Hate takes uh. a lot more energy. Fighting is much more physical. And I'll talk about physiology if you want to talk about physiology. Yes, Rebecca, right? take, like, take us in there right now. Physiologically, right? Yep. Love and compassion is a much calmer, open, peaceful physiological state than those extreme reactions you were talking about. Whether you're talking about fighting, sympathetic hyperarousal, that activation is a very dysregulated state in the human condition. Same right. with shut down and disconnect and what I call hypoarousal. That's even more life-threatening to the organism. When we get to the point of shutting down, it's even more dangerous to our human being than is the fight. Okay, so actually shutting down and disconnecting or screaming, yelling and getting activating and fighting is more, it takes more energy to sustain those states than it does to hold one of love and compassion. So it is physiologically exhausting. We burn out in those states. They are not sustainable. And many, many 
many of us are joining the fight in a way for me that might not get us to that solution of love and connection in the way that we need to. So that's a personal view. Okay. And it's not popular. I understand that. It isn't? How is it not popular? What's the pushback that you get? The pushback that I get is what they're wrong. Why you're joining them by loving them. I'm like, no, No. I'm not. I think we are all holding these polarized views that does not take the collective adequately in to account. I think you're touching on to this element of humanization versus dehumanization. And yes. I think about this last year with, you know, so much happening politically. Yes. And my husband and I are very engaged in, in that. So my kids were exposed and there'd yes. be certain figures that would come on the TV and they'd go, ha ha. And they'd make fun of them. Yes. And we're like, no, they're like, oh, yeah. are you supporting them? Or like, no, no, we stand against everything they stand for. And we will not dehumanize them. You got it. We, that's bullying right that's now, right. even though we stand against their ideologies right. and we don't respect them. We will not dehumanize them. And we've had to say it so much this year. <laughs> I'm not going to be a perpetrator. That is yeah. perpetrator energy. Okay. Dang. When you attack somebody who you don't agree with, that is perpetrator energy. Okay. You are, you are mm. a possessing perpetrator energy. And I'm feeling tearful just hearing you yes. say that. That's really hitting my system right That's now. Right. And huh. it is, it is hard. It is very hard. And the, and again, for me, I'm going to keep going, coming back to this. The more I heal my trauma, the less I need to demonize anybody. Anybody. And just the energy it takes if we are fighting or shut down. Yes. Just summarizing. Yes. That's actually going to move us away from our values towards burnout it's not sustainable yes but then we have parts of our inner system and even my intellectual parts there's parts of me that are like sure i totally am 100 on board and other parts are like are you kidding me this is where you're going to get like oh that's great in theory and then you're going to go get your ass kicked so have fun with that and so a lot of it it's a lot of inner inner uh inner parts to navigate for sure huh it really is you know and sometimes I even think myself, am I being too Pollyanna-ish here? Is this, am I, am I too in the clouds? Like, Frank, is war necessary, right? Like, sometimes I'll say, do we need to, you know, right? When there are atrocities happening, is, is stopping it important? And I do struggle mm-hmm. with that, okay? I really do. Um, that, you know, sometimes I'm like, Frank, sitting in love and compassion, you're not making enough of a stand to stop an atrocity. So it's not an easy position. It's not straightforward. And I really hold that a lot. I really, I do struggle with that. But what I do, and it's interesting because this has been some of my medicine work even, um, doing, doing some psychedelic medicine work, is this human experience versus what is beyond all of us. I do believe in a connectedness of all human beings. I, mm. I hold that. We are one. When you when you can get into those spiritual spaces beyond the human experience, we are all together. We are all connected and it is all love. So I, I do believe the higher place is one of love and compassion and connection. I also think when we're here in our human experience, Part of that human experience is the fight, is the struggle, is the working it out, right? And is that totally. sitting on both sides. So I, I, I don't need to just rise above it and not be a part of it, right? Because it is real. Mm-hmm. That's what we're here for. We're here to learn things. We're here to grow. We're here to experience diversity. And so I think our, and I believe that's the same with culture and society as it is with any individual. I think we mm-hmm. are collectively struggling and fighting we're in a huge diversity around the earth and the world and i i want us to to struggle and learn and grow and get beyond this and to do that if we want to move towards love we have to move through and heal the yes. wounds that we're carrying and that we created that is, and that there's a lot carrying. of 
objection to that yes. because a lot of parts say that's dangerous. You right. need you need these yeah. parts, and then that's 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 one of areas I know we're very aligned on for sure. So okay, I remember on this note. Yeah, I think I, I was on your PA team, on your leadership team for your trauma neuroscience training. And I wrote this down and I circled it Mm -hmm. and highlighted it. And you said, being a trauma therapist will challenge your intimacy issues. And my brain went to, I think the same thing goes for anyone in a leadership position. Like being a leader will challenge your intimacy issues. Tell, Tell me why you think this happens. Because we get triggered when we work with people who are traumatized. So if I'm a trauma therapist, okay, well, but for, and, and who isn't traumatized? I mean, right. is, that, is there, okay. No, no, I mean, no, I, I think I, who has, so raise your hand if you haven't been shamed. Like, right, go ahead. Right. It's like that. Right. You yeah, know, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of research that shows we, you know, 70% of the population has had, blah, 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 blah. There's, there's a lot of statistics out there. So I think it's part of the human experience to go through adversity, to go through trauma. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that in, in this new book, mm. I talk about different kinds of wounding. Okay. There's big T trauma, little T trauma is the way somebody right. talked about, about what I've done is ex- in, in expanding the IFS model is talk about different kinds of wounds. You can have collective wounding, for example, a bunch, a series of things that add up to a wound. You can have what I call developmental wounding. Okay. A similar wound at different developmental stages. Parental Mm -hmm. pairing wounding, okay, where you can have a a wound from one parent and another parent. You know, you can have cultural burdens of, you know, cultural wounds from family of origin, from the culture we live in. So there's Mm -hmm. different kinds of wounding. Everybody's, you know, and you put that out there. We've all, like, everybody's experienced different versions of those kinds of different woundings. So I don't think anybody is wound free in this human experience personally okay medical trauma you know emotional trauma and just to jump in real quick yeah having a wound is not pathologizing it is because we've dared to show up and do life right you're you don't see this wounding as a less than or it's, something it's a human that experience. Is a label. i see it as the human experience it is make part sure of what we have all are here to go through and either perpetuate or do the work and get beyond this is where I think our choice is. We either can do the work and learn and grow, or we can choose to bury it, which is where people perpetuate it. And this is the same case with leadership. So whether we're talking about being a, a trauma therapist, working with a client who has a trauma history, your history will get triggered. Okay. Or we can talk about a leader who's leading an organization or a company or whatever. Your stuff will get triggered. Okay, your leadership will be challenged, your inequity, your insecurity will be activated. Anytime you're in relationship with people in this way, you're inevitably going to get triggered and activated around it. You know, um, I, I talk about this in regards to relational or complex trauma, like why in the world would somebody who's been relationally violated repeatedly get into an intimate relationship with a total stranger? Who's their therapist? Like, it's such a setup for disaster. It's inevitable. It's inevitable that the client stuff is going to get stirred up. That's what they're there for. But if you were free of life, you'd be fine. But you're not. Your stuff will get triggered too. Okay? I see this with leadership. I see this with leadership all the time. Again, we talked about what drove you into that leadership position. Was it your wound or is it from a a higher place of helping and growing and, you know, providing in this way? But your stuff is going to get activated, you know. And, you know, I I feel like this for myself. I I feel like as long as I keep clearing, I'm going to be able to handle the traumas of leadership from a different place. Not that I won't get any. It's like when I get when they get pushed back, when I get challenged, when I fall as a leader, because you will, it's part of the leadership experience. How am I going to be with those traumas of the leadership? And the more I heal, the more I'm going to be able to address it with vulnerability, to take responsibility for it, (laughs) to apologize for it, to do all the appropriate healthy things when leadership gets challenged. I, I, for me, I don't think it's a matter of 
if it's a matter of when. So it's not that you're not going to get challenged. It's not that you're not going to fall. It's not that you're not going to make bad mistakes and be harmful to people. It's what's your relationship to it? Are you going to get defensive and protective? Or are you going to take responsibility and apologize and grow as a human being as a result of it? Same thing as a therapist. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And I love the distinction of, you know, you will be activated. You will be triggered. It's And and if we have the expectation of I did something wrong because I was triggered, which is a lot of what I hear in the personal development, professional development space. It's so dangerous Mm -hmm. um, versus, okay, and and really embracing curiosity when you have that flash as data versus an identity and helping our systems know we're going to be okay, even if we get activated. That's the work. Yeah, let me say this too, because as you mentioned something, it's important for me. If you're a leader who has to be right and correct, (laughs) right, you're going to fall. If you're a leader who also is traumatized, you create this trickle-down environment that says the people that you're leading also don't have to be perfect and good, and they're also allowed to fall or be less than or make a mistake or whatever. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the leadership, no. that trickle-down way is so important. The systemic impact of a leader who can sit with failure, with yes. conflict, with hard conversations, yeah. is reparative, almost has that parental, you know, the, yeah. it heals the attack, it can have the impact of healing attachment wounds or exacerbating them. Right. And so, again, the more unburdened leaders out there, the medicine, we're on medicine in our world, at least that's how I'm seeing it. So spot on, I'm with you. I appreciate that. So I want to get a little granular. You teach that there's a very common overlap between PTSD and ADHD. Mm -hmm. And especially with entrepreneurs, there's some really cool research and studies out there showing this high um, kind of, kind of. intersection of entrepreneurship and ADHD. So can you walk us through this connection? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, with having two kids who both have ADHD um, and I, because ADHD has a brilliance and a creativity and expansiveness attached to it that is out of this world. And those are the people who create the new innovative companies and organizations and computers and you know what I mean? So they, it's fast paced. It's, it's large, it's big, it's expansive, it's creative to beat the band. People with ADD are so super creative when they're in that space. So they're the people that are drawn to these entrepreneur leadership positions because of the thrill and the seeking and the excitement and the expansiveness of their creative mind. These are not average minds. These are wildly expansive creative minds. So there's a pull to that sector of the population. And... And there's also well, a couple things. So there's a pull to that. And then from, you're, there's a crash and burn as a result of that. Because with ADD, you know, you have this capacity when you're in hyper focus to be able to create amazing things. You can learn a whole course, a whole semester's course in one week when you're in hyper focus. So you can create amazing things when you're in that hyper focus space. But it typically is not sustainable. So then there's this crash and burn and failure that comes along with this. So there's a very bipolar looking experience for leaders who also have ADHD. Okay. So as a result of life, there's a lot of traumas that can accumulate as a result of that. I bought a company and then it totally failed. I had, you know, a great marriage and then I totally lost it. Like there's this up and down, failure, success, failure, success trajectory for people with ADHD who also are in these leadership positions. They're drawn to it. You know, I created Starbucks and then the whole company fell apart. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of extreme nature. So there is life experience in the ADD way that creates all these traumas that people end up having is one view of it. But also physiologically, the stress of the excitement and the highness of that ADHD is related to cortisol. It's a stress hormone and it's toxic to the brain. This is one of these chicken or an egg things. 
Okay, so people who have that expansive energy have a, are running on stress hormones a lot. Okay, they're doing things in this very stressed way. You need to create a crisis in order to raise your dopamine levels in order to get something done. When you're creating a crisis, you're increasing cortisol, which is your stress chemical. Cortisol is toxic to the brain. So the more you're living in that stressed, expansive way, the more you're creating toxicity by those stress hormones, which then produce an ADHD-like picture because cortisol is toxic to the hippocampus and it's toxic to the prefrontal cortex. We know the neurobiology of ADHD is in the prefrontal cortex, okay? So it is this very circular pattern, okay? People who are creative and expansive and get into these positions, the creative expansive energy, which is also so stress-related, is then toxic to the brain, causing more of an ADHD-like picture, okay? Is, is it, are you following this? I'm tracking beautifully. Okay. And um, and again, I've heard you teach this. My brain is going to the questions. Like I, I When I knew I was going to have this interview yes. with you, I, I shot a message out to a handful of people who um, are long-term, have had this diagnosis, and who are recent to it. And the theme was, why is it so hard to get help? Yeah. And why is this not understood, yeah. you know, in our culture? I know that's kind of where my brain, I'm hearing Got this it. going, yes, yes, yes. And still there's so many of these little dings of what I'm, who I am is not okay yes. and how I'm experienced in this world. So, yeah. I'll tell you a little bit more about that, which is an interesting thing. And this was many, many years ago um, when I was working with Bessel van der Kolk at the trauma center. Um he went to medical school with John Rady. Okay, John Rady and Ned Hallowell are two very famous kind of ADD psychiatrists. Okay, so John Hallowell and Ned, John, John Rady and Ed Hallowell, driven to distraction, is this kind of you know right. um, historical kind of Bible, for, if you will, around bringing ADHD to popular culture in that way. And Bessel and I would meet with. Um, John Rady and John would say, and this was when ADHD was really being overdiagnosed. Like everybody had it. Everybody had it. It was like that overdiagnosis time. He said, Bessel, it's just really amazing. So many of my people with ADHD have trauma histories. And Bessel's like, huh, that's really interesting, John. So many of my people with trauma histories also have ADHD. So it was, it was like almost the beginning of that overlap because there were these camps of it. You're in the ADHD camp, you're in the trauma camp, and it was that bringing it together. And then there has been neuroscience exploration and research as we understand the, the, the neurobiology of PTSD better and better is like, oh, wow, these two things are what we call comorbid conditions. They often exist together because the stress of ADHD is toxic to the brain, which causes a PTSD-like picture, which makes people more ADHD-driven to be able to be success and overcome their trauma. So it's this very circular pattern. And unfortunately, it isn't very well-known in popular culture. It isn't very well-known by a lot of psychiatrists, honestly enough. You know what I mean? So it is a, it's, you know, I'm glad to hear people having these questions. Most people, when I was a kid, when we were a kid growing up, ADHD were for, was for boys and they outgrew it when they became adults. There was yes, no such thing that. as adult ADHD. That's only within the last 20 or so years that we said, hey, wait a minute, you don't outgrow this thing. So there was huge amounts of the population who grew up, who were told they no longer have ADD because they outgrew it, but they were living these ADD adult lives and without getting any support or treatment for it because you weren't even supposed to give stimulants beyond the age of 16 because kids were supposed to outgrow it. So there are a bunch of adults who still have it, who didn't get the appropriate, appropriate treatment for it. Do you know what I mean? So it's... And that's traumatizing because they're yes. going undiagnosed or underdiagnosed or undersupported. And then when, that's what I'm failing. seeing with some of 
They yeah. keep failing and crashing and burning and burning out and nobody's supporting it or acknowledging it. And they're like, and then it's like, I'm horrible. I'm wrong. I'm no good. Look, once again, I failed. So then their self-esteem gets really low. Then they get depressed and back into that vicious cycle. It's a very painful cycle for people to be in for sure. And I've seen with women who have this diagnosis too, they're, they're the parts of them that compensate to get things done and the multitasking. No wonder they're so exhausted or have these physiological issues or autoimmune issues that come up. And it's just, oh my gosh, my sister has been holding so much. So thank you. Thank you for walking through that in the gifted way that you do with neuroscience and the brain. I'd love to shift to another, another area where I see IFS really kind of collide in, I think, the best of ways with kind of pop culture and personal development. And and that's around the area of inner critics. Mm. We sure love to attack them and exile them. And and we got to kill them. We got to shut them down. And if they're bugging you, it's your fault. And we've breathed this in that the burdens around just this area are I'm finding so nuanced. IFS teaches us to befriend them and love them up. And I when I start doing that with people, (laughs) both my my clinical and leadership, they're like, they kind of do the head tilt. Yes. Like, what? Yeah. You know, which is so countercultural. So That's right. why do you think this approach to the parts of us that cause us so much distress is so effective, but also so challenging? Yeah, it's a really um I it's a really complicated area, I believe, for people to really embrace wholeheartedly. Okay, it's for me, even personally, loving up critics was a theoretical issue because Dick Schwartz said I was supposed to do that. <laughs> right. It's like, okay, I will, or, you know, as opposed to fully embracing and feeling loving, that loving, loving them. First of all, most critics, first of all, there's so many first, second, third of all, most critical energy is, um, what we call a legacy burden. It comes from the perpetrator. It's external energy that's brought into the system. Okay. When you are a little kid and you're being verbally abused, you're worthless piece of crap. Okay. You internalize that perpetrator energy. Okay. Cause you're the recipient of it. Okay. Simultaneously, you also see and have experienced how effective that critical critical energy is. Wow, does that stop everything? Wow, does that keep people away? So then you develop a part within you that holds that very effective critical energy, okay? Mm-hmm. You hold it internally and externally. So you can say, you're a worthless piece of crap to anyone who's coming close to you and may potentially hurt you but you also do it internally. You worthless piece of crap. If you stop eating or drinking, then they'll love us. So the internal critic is a staunch protector in the way that it knows how to protect. It's very complicated. So you have within you, most of us, and I would say almost everybody who has a critic has the part that they internalized from their external environment. They have the part that became their own, that they're using internally and externally. But they also carry the wound from being criticized by the outside environment. So therein lies this horrible polarity, as we say in IFS, is I have a critic in me and I'm doing the very same thing that was done to me. Oh my God, that feels so horrible. Okay. And it's a very difficult place. This is the place for me, Rebecca, where I say suicidality makes sense. Okay. I'm with you. Yeah. Like, and I have personally felt this as a parent. I'll shift a little bit as a parent. When I have done to my children what was done to me, I have the suicidal part of me says it totally makes sense for me to kill myself. I think it's a great idea to kill myself because the last thing I want to do is what was done to me because holding perpetrator energy, which is what critics really are, right? Is as perpetrator energy because they see the effectiveness. It's like, I know how bad this is. And then I've just done it to somebody that I love larger than life. 
It's such a powerful dynamic and it's so painful. The other thing I'll say about it, this is like a whole, is that the critics know how bad it is their behavior. So they feel shame themselves about their own critical behavior, even though they don't know how to change it. Okay. And this is where the befriending and the love going even back to your diagram yes. is so powerful, loving the parts of ourselves right. that are trying to help us, right. but really don't, that's, that's transformative internal. <clears throat> yes. And when those critics really do feel the love from us, it's the powerful, they, they just fall apart and sob because nobody has ever valued them before. It's a very powerful, like I can get emotional when mm -hmm. I'm emotionally loving a critic because they feel so bad about their behavior, but they've had to fight culture and society and the internal system because they get such a bad reputation. And I, I just want you to emphasize a little bit more about the connection. And you teach this, the connection with these inner critics and relational trauma. So I think this is, the, when I know when I share this with those I work with, they're like, oh, this is okay. I'm, wow, this is why this is happening. This breach happened internally. And I don't want to keep doing this. So yeah, can you share a little bit more about that connection? Yeah. And I, I drew these diagrams as you're referring to that, you know, that are in this book, in this new book of mine. And it's like these, these, these very complicated systems is the way I see it. I the external critics. So I, I, we can talk about this shame. We can talk about the hyper and the hypo aroused systems, if you will, like a hyper aroused, if you're verbally abused, you're creating a shame cycle as a result of that. Okay. You're a worthless piece of crack, crap, external shamer, external mm -hmm. critic produces an internal critic. I'm mm -hmm. a worthless piece of crap. That internal critic then causes all this shaming behavior mm. internally. You're a worthless piece of crap. You're eating too much. You're drinking too much. Any number of things, okay? <laughs> and so, and the external critic that does that, the, the external critic creates this internal critic. The internal critic feels so much shame about its own behavior, but it perpetuates shame within the system because it criticizes so many different parts within. You're worthless, you're no good, you eat too much, okay? So it produces more shame. And then there's the part who was shamed by the external environment. So there's a wound inside, okay? This is all, and it's all relational. Uh, it, it's, it's all due to relational violation, okay? The same is true with neglect. I'll, I'll speak a little bit of this too, is good, that... Good. If I'm, nobody loves me, nobody sees me, nobody wants me, if my parents don't think I'm valuable, I really must be a worthless piece of crap. So neglect can cause an internal critic also, okay? If, if, my, if my parents don't love me, I really must be bad and awful, then I have to do all these things to be good so somebody likes me, which creates an internal critic cycle. And just to jump in, this can neglect can still happen when you're provided for, like you have Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yes. but it's the emotional neglect that so many people are like, why am I struggling with this? I was given everything. Right. Why am I still? And it's this emotional neglect. Is you this, got it. this We're talking okay. about the lack of love. We're talking about okay. being seen, being known, being loved. That's the neglect <sighs> piece, right? That so many people However, hold, so many leaders hold because that's why they become leaders. <laughs> like, let a bunch of people love me because I was never really was loved. Like, it's it it drives so much of that. The other thing you I'll know, say about it is, is, you want to say, you want to go ahead or you want me? No, no, go ahead. No, keep the going. The other thing I want to say about it, and I learned this relational approach to critics by a friend and colleague, Chris Burris, who's one of the lead trainers in the internal family systems model, is relationally working with the critics. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. I just love that because he'll, he does, he's done enough of this work and he teaches it's beautifully. It's like, 
So where did you learn how to, how to help in this way? Once you understand the positive intention of the critic, then you could say, so where did you learn how to help this way? I get that you're helping. Where did you learn? And they'll say from that, they'll talk about their perpetrator. Are you interested in learning how to help in a different way? And these internal critics start melting. They're like, oh my gosh, somebody's willing to help me. I hate doing this, but I had to. Somebody's going to help me try and, do it, try and do this another way. So there's a way that we can relationally work with critical parts and befriend them. And then, they, and then point out every time we see them do it differently, which so then yay. opens the door to healing the wound so they ultimately don't need to do it anymore. I just want to leave it there. That was just beautifully said. No, I, I think that's in it because it's so powerful yes. when the thinking parts can go, oh, this is why I can't just kill my inner critics. Yes. What so many people teach, you, you know, it. shut them down, release them. Yes. And so their intellectual parts can relax a little bit to welcome the befriending you got and it. so, and the love. So that's powerful. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, what's your relationship with your inner critics and are, are there any that are still... <clears throat> Still having a hard time to transform? The, the hardest ones for me to transform are the ones that show up with my kids. Those are, those oh. are always, <laughs> yes. right? There you, yes. those, are, those are, those are always the hardest ones for me. And like, and I've never, it's, I'm fortunate enough to never have really been suicidal, honestly, but I ha I understand where suicide, I was like, that when I said earlier, I was like, I get why people feel suicidal. Cause I've said to myself, I would rather kill myself than keep hurting my kids in the way that I was hurt when I have those dysregulated moments. So it's that it's so painful. But what I will say to you, and that really, like in my own personal therapy, we've worked so much on, on my inner critics because, look, as therapists, we know what appropriate behavior is. Like we teach it for a living, appropriate <laughs> behavior. Hello. And when we are taken over by one of our critics, we know how harmful it is. We know how inappropriate it is or all those negative words that people use with critics. So it produces so much self-loathing. It produces mm. so much self-loathing when we can identify from that place our critics' behavior. The thing that I, and I can, I can, visualize this as I've worked with my critics and really love them up. They really mm -hmm. do melt and they're just so young. This mm -hmm. is the thing from relational trauma and early attachment trauma is most of these critics were developed very early on in our life. They didn't develop when we were 35 years old. They developed when we were three or four or five, when we were, treated that way in these kind of young, complex trauma relationships, mostly with primary caregivers, but not only. So the, the, the beauty for me, and I'm saying this personally, is, oh my God, when I see my internal critics transform, they're just these little tiny kids that have mm -hmm. taken on the energy of my perpetrator to try to help. And they're so fragile and they're so vulnerable, and they love to be hugged and loved, and they just cry, cry, cry. Like, this is my own personal experience with my own critics. Mm -hmm. You know, I have less of them with my kids as this, I, I think I mentioned in the last time together, I did this huge piece of work within the last six to eight months of my own personal healing journey, and it had a lot to do with my own physical abuse history, and then the reactivity that would come along with that physical abuse. So my, my reactivity is so dramatically less with my kids. I'm able to embrace those parts that were critical toward them in a very different way. So I have this very loving relationship with my critics because they don't need to be as active anymore because my, that wound underneath is healed. So I, I'll say something that it makes it, you know, like, and, and oh, yeah. I'll say one <laughs> other thing about it. When you're working with critics, some, there's sometimes you need to work with those critics before you can heal the wound. 
because they won't even give access to the wound. And other times, those poor critics, that's the place that I'm in right now, need so much healing themselves after the wound underneath them is healed. Yeah. Okay. It isn't a one and done three step. Not at all. It's a systemic relationship process. Yes, absolutely. And so I'm currently just loving up these critics and me and just working with them for, and it takes time. It takes time. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have a lot of burdens because of their behavior that need to be released themselves. They're very burdened parts. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And and for me, some of my inner critics don't, I've got some young ones for sure, Mm -hmm. but I have some around the tween and teen years too, because of my story. And they have their own little spice as a result of their, their age too. I've delighted in and helping them just celebrate the spice Mm -hmm. because the spice is what got me in trouble. um, A lot just by me being spicy and stubborn. So thank you for unpacking that. I want to ask one other question around trauma and defining it because so many people have either a narrow view of it. There was a story when I was with a bunch of colleagues of mine who were in the coaching leadership space, like from Intel and McKinsey mm-hmm. and, you know, Google. And I talked to him about trauma-informed leadership and their eyes just about popped out of their head. Yeah. They're like, Rebecca, you can't talk about that. Yeah. And I'm like, why? They're like, that's just too much. I can't handle that. And so there's this fear that if you even talk about it, yeah. that, that it's going to bring in a, a bunch of stuff or trauma is just a car accident or childhood, <clears throat> you know, sexual abuse. And those are both huge, you know, sources of trauma, but Trauma is such a spectrum. So I'd love for you to share how you conceptualize trauma and why do you think a trauma-informed approach to leadership is so important? So there's two questions there. Yeah, well, so the first thing around this whole idea, like in popular culture, trauma and leadership are the antithesis of each other. And they don't go along together because if you're a leader, you're strong and powerful and you lead, right? Trauma is about weakness and vulnerability in our culture and society. So no, you're not going to be a leader and talk about your trauma history because that means you're weak and you're not strong and you're not a good leader. So there is this. That's inappropriate for work. That's just not appropriate It's workshop. Because trauma, identifying and acknowledging trauma is acknowledging a vulnerability within ourselves. I was dominated. I was overpowered. I was taken advantage of. Culture sees that as a weakness, not as a strength to be able to acknowledge right. that. So for me, they just, I get why the people that you're talking about are like, no, 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 are you kidding me? Like, why would I do that? I'll lose my job as a leader if I talk about my vulnerability, you know? And we know, you know, Brene Brown talks about vulnerability, of course, as a superpower and not as a weakness, but I think trauma in our culture is experienced as a weakness and vulnerability. So that is not synonymous with leadership. So I just want to... We need to change that, yes, darn it. Yes, exactly. But I, I think that's <laughs> there, right? That's totally there. there. So that's one piece I want to say. And and I do, Janina Fisher and I, for those of you who know her, those of you who don't, she's somebody who's a leader in the field of trauma also, kind of came up together with what I would call the spectrum of trauma, if you will. That I love this. All traumas yeah. are not created equal, and tra- it's not like, oh, trauma, you know, Bessel van der Kolk's years ago was like, you know, PTSD was identified, was defined by war veterans. And then when Judy Harmon was like, well, what about women who have been violated in our culture and society? Like, well, that doesn't fit because it doesn't fit the war paradigm. Right. So they Judy Herman and Bessel van der Kolk kind of comes up, come up, came up together with this complex trauma diagnosis, which I'll talk about. Right. But there is single incident trauma, uh, we call acute stress reaction, okay? Acute stress disorder, ASD, I think is what it's called. And that's that garden variety. I had a car accident. I had a death of somebody. Garden variety, not any less significant by any means, but more single incident, single event. Okay, so there's that. Most of that resolves within the first 30 days. Okay, so people can normally have a trauma. We get PTSD symptoms. We should not get rid of them because it's our brain processing trauma. 
Okay. It's yes. a normal processing of traumatic material that resolves within a month. And everybody, most, the vast majority of people have had at least that in their life. Then there is PTSD. So if you've had one, two, three of these, they accumulate and you don't recover so easily anymore from them. And then you can develop chronic PTSD or PTSD symptoms that last beyond 30 days. So if you're still having symptoms from whatever trauma you experienced beyond 30 days, you have this diagnosis of PTSD hyperarousal or intrusive imaging, numbing and avoidance, uh, intrusive imaging, numbing and avoidance, and physiological hyperarousal are kind of the three categories in that. So that's PTSD. This whole thing that my book talks about primarily is what we call complex trauma, okay, or relational violation, okay? And that's what most therapists see, honestly, is chronically relationally violated in dysfunctional families, yelled at with alcoholic parents, with neglectful parents who are, you know, depressed and unavailable, any number of repeated relational violations. And one, two, three, we're talking about one, two, three hundred or thousand when you're living mm -hmm. in a family of origin that is, quote, in those terms, dysfunctional, you're, develop, you're experiencing relational violation all the time. And it incorporates connection and loss, connection and loss. So people with complex trauma histories tend to have a horrific time with loss because oh my goodness, they yes. experience loss of the healthy parent all the time. Every time daddy's drunk, I've lost my healthy parent again, okay? So there's this loss component that's very potent for people who have complex relational traumas. Those are the ones who get married three, four, five, six times and get divorced three, four, five, six times because there's this constant desire of redemption but a repeating of mm. your relational trauma. You know what stands out to me hmm. and I... I mean, I always see like I often talk, talk about we talk about in the daring way work with shame work. Shame work is trauma work. Trauma work is shame work. Yes. And that ushers its way into grief and loss work. Yes. And the way that you just framed it, I almost it's like there's this aversion to feeling the grief and loss because that's its own kind of pain. It's it. a very cleansing pain, but it's and it's essential. And even <clears throat> we we learn in IFS that self grieves, too. Yeah. And so. That is that can feel overwhelming also. I'm just thinking this through as you connect those dots for me, why that is an important component is how we do grief also. Well, so and it's a double trauma too, because anything that right. you experience, if you have a relational trauma history or complex trauma history, anything that you, any loss that you experience current day activates the relational trauma in your history. So it's really a double trauma. That's partly why it's, it's experienced larger than life because it's past and present, okay? Mm -hmm. And we try to avoid it because it's so much bigger. And people think we're exaggerating because mm -hmm. it is larger than life because it's all the accumulated history plus whatever loss is going on in the current day. I think it's really powerful what you just said, mm -hmm. just to normalize that and how it's it seems like an exaggeration, but it's such a true true experience for so many and so many are holding this and that led to and I'm so glad you put this in your newest book uh, transcending trauma for those who haven't heard our first uh, part of our conversation can you talk a little bit about your new book that just came out transcending trauma yep before we do that I want to mention the last piece of trauma which is the extreme dissociative oh, sure. trauma so there's an extreme oh, thank you dissociative trauma right that those are people that have a diagnosis of in old-fashioned terms multiple personality disorder in current terms dissociative identity disorder and there are many people have had been in cults have had really extreme repeated violations and they really have separated themselves for survival purposes and protective person purposes in different personalities so there is an extreme version of trauma too that i just want to mention that kind of is relation it's almost like relational trauma on steroids okay and but I'm glad you brought that up and made sure to get that in there because I, I think that's what so many people feel that they're going to uncover yes. is that 
or they'll be seen as you that or both. It. That's exactly right. So this this spectrum, I love talking about things in a spectrum because, it, and I love the, um, what was it you said? I want you to say it again about trauma. There's many. Uh, All trauma. trauma shouldn't be created equal. That's it. All trauma is not created equal. Yeah. And I think that is such a normalizing and also a personalized, you can personalize that approach and go, okay, while everyone has this, the common humanity of right. it, my unique aspect of it and how I got here yeah. and how I'm dealing with it is unique to me and my story. And that's okay and normal too. That's right. And be, not only are they, uh, all traumas are not created equal, all traumas are significant in every person's perception and experience because yes. the other side is this is no big deal. People have it much worse than I do. Why am I making such a big deal about this? The experience and the perception is just as unique as the event. So you cannot downplay or undermine the significance of any trauma. Okay, I shouldn't be feeling this because... I wasn't sexually abused. Not true. Yes. Not true. Yes. That is the most frequent flyer statement. One it. of the most frequent flyer statements I hear in my work. That's exactly right. Thank you for that. Yeah. I think well, that just needs to be on repeat. Yeah. So I'll just like be on repeat <laughs> for so many of us personally and with those yeah. that we we know and love. So yes, I want to make sure we talk about your new yes. book and Transcending Trauma. So yeah, please do share. Yeah, Transcending Trauma. It is something that I am just so, so proud of. Um, it is it, over the moon excited about it, I have to say. It's the thing, some of the things that I've liked about it, and I'm excited that it's getting well received and that people are resonating with it. That just warms my heart, makes me feel really good. I talk about my own personal experiences in this book. I integrate neuroscience in this book because I think there's a lot of neuroscience that can talk about the way trauma is encoded and experienced in our brains and in our body. There's uh, neuro neuroscience-informed interventions in this book. I've done a lot of expanding of the IFS model in this book as it relates to trauma specifically. So there is the IFS model, which Dick Schwartz is a founder and the originator of, and it's just a brilliant model as a paradigm for living that I believe is going to change the world personally. And I feel happy and proud to expand the model in certain key ways as a result to trauma, relational violations, because there's certain unique things that you need to do from my perspective in doing this work for years to expand the model to include this specific subset of population of people that have been relationally, repeatedly relationally traumatized. So I'm super excited about it and hope people are interested in going out and checking it out. Uh, transcending trauma, healing complex PTSD with internal family systems therapy. And this is a book that's not just for those who do clinical work. This would benefit anybody who's interested in understanding their trauma or why, you know, what what's going on in our very traumatized culture. Yes, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Wonderful. Yeah. And how can people find you and connect with yeah. you? So if you're interested in learning more about me or following me more, easiest way really is to go to my website, which is Frank Anderson. It's the O-N. This is another thing I've learned as I've changed my name from Guestella to Anderson. It's O-N or E-N. So it's frankandersonmd.com. And you'll you know learn about my whereabouts, my teaching um, engagements, podcasts, books, chapters, all that kind of stuff there. And you can sign up for my newsletter if you're interested in doing that. Wonderful. Frank, thank you so much for this time, I, I am always delighted uh, for more people to connect with not only your wisdom, but your heart. So thank you for your faithfulness in your own personal work. So you can then share that with the world. So very grateful for you. And thank you so much for doing this and providing this service for people. I love the, the way that you're moving into this leadership world and bring you're bringing kind of psychotherapy and leadership together and the treatment of trauma in a way that is so helpful and necessary for our world. So thank you for providing this for people. Thank you for that, Frank. Yeah. Appreciate you. Same. Many of the cultures we work and live in tell us to hide our burdens and struggles. They tell us that if they do surface, we need to shut them down stat. And as a result, it's become a full-time job managing and hiding the often invisible burdens we carry instead of just shedding light on the normal experiences of being human. Everybody has a story of struggle and everyone carries burdens that weigh them down. 
We can't escape picking up some baggage when we dare to care. Mental health struggles are universal struggles. We all experience them. We all have mental health. So we should stop pretending that they don't exist. Because when we pretend they don't exist, we end up denying our story of struggle and we reject that pain in others too. This is harmful and not helpful. Frank reminds us when we do the work to unburden our pain, we can show up and fight injustice and toxic cultural norms from a disruptive posture of love and compassion. So ask yourself, what old patterns and baggage do you need to disrupt? What stuck with you for way too long, despite your attempts to bury it? And what are the burdens you're carrying that need to be healed? And what spaces are you in that you need to show up in with more love and compassion? It's never too late to heal, to grow, and to learn. Depression, anxiety, ADHD, OCD, PTSD, grief, loss, neglect, and more. They're all a part of being a unique, complex human being who's engaged in the world. Let's do our part and create a world where all parts of our story and being are welcome. Leading is hard. Leading is also controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is on a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I cannot wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.